If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams. So they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello. Welcome to the second part of BBC History Magazine's March 2009 podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine. And I'm Sue Wingrove, deputy editor. Now, coming up in this podcast. The thing is, you only need to make one mistake, and that's it. You're dead. There's no way back. That was Peter Hart on the dangerous life of the World War I fighter pilots. I mean, Arthur was from the late 12th century onwards. Uh, the most popular um, of all romance stories. You're talking Harry Potter in terms of sales. And that was medievalist Mark Morris explaining how King Edward I harnessed the power of the Arthurian legends. We'll hear more on these topics in a moment, and of course they are explored in the March 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which features Richard III on the cover. And if you're not familiar with the magazine, it's produced by BBC Magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly, and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast. So our first interview is with Peter Hart, who is a historian of the First World War. He's author of Aces Falling, A War Above the Trenches, 1918, and he was consultant to the BBC Time Watch programme about two of the greatest, but now broadly forgotten, British flying aces. He's written on that topic for the March issue of the magazine, and Rob Attar has talked to him to find out more about the First World War pilot's experience. 
What was the role of aircraft in the First World War? The role of aircraft in the First World War is not quite what people think. It's not shooting down the enemy's aircraft. If you think about it, that could never be the real reason. There's always going to be something else. And what aircraft offered, they were the reconnaissance arm of the army in two ways. Firstly, they went across the lines and took photographs of the areas you can't see from your front line. And then they could bring those photographs back and the photographic reconnaissance experts could sort of have a look at them, pick out the targets they wanted to obliterate with the artillery and Bob's your uncle, so to speak. The second role was... They would go up and then using something called the clock code, which allowed them to communicate with the gunners on the ground, they could actually correct the firing of those gunners so that not only did they identify the targets, but then they could actually get the shells smack bang on top of them and blow them to smithereens. That was the real function of aircraft in the Great War. And the thing about scout aircraft, or fighters as we would call them now, is that they were there purely to protect your own reconnaissance and uh, artillery observation aircraft and to shoot down the enemies, because of course no one could allow that sort of freedom of the airs if people are going to use it that way. So the fighting between the different aircrafts was really to stop them carrying out their primary purpose. That's right. And people like Richthofen knew that. The Germans fought a defensive air war most of the time, uh, much as they did on the ground through 1915-16 and 1917. They were badly outnumbered, the Germans, in the air. And people like Richthofen only fought when they had to or when they were confident they could get away. And they mainly targeted the reconnaissance aircraft. It wasn't a matter of cowardice. It was a matter of the primary target. And they knew that one doddery old uh, British reconnaissance aircraft could cause the deaths of hundreds of their men. So they really tried to uh, concentrate on those. And the British, equally in reverse, were very keen to get their reconnaissance aircraft up and operational because if they could target a gun battery or a machine gun post and take it out before their troops had attacked, it in turn could save hundreds of their men. So you see, it was really very, very important what went on in the air. But the scouts were just there to try and stop these other people doing their jobs. That doesn't make them any less interesting. Would you say that any side actually won the air war? I don't think you can win an air war in that way. Eventually, of course, the Allies win the air war, and by the end of 1918, the Germans have lost the air war, but they'd lost everywhere, and it's almost, in a sense, irrelevant. In an air war, what you're trying to do is seize control above the battlefield where you're going to launch an offensive, or if the enemy are going to launch an offensive, you need to control it. And so each time one of the great offensives came along, like the Battle of the Somme in 1916 or Passchendaele 17, there would be a huge air war that started much earlier and ran right through to control the air so that their own reconnaissance aircraft could carry out their functions. Now, we won some of them. For instance, perversely, we won the one over the Somme, the battle for the Somme in the air. We didn't do quite so well in Arras, although we still managed to carry out our functions. And one of the things in deciding who wins an air battle is whether you actually manage to carry out the functions that the army on the ground wants you to. And in fact, even at the Battle of Arras in 1917, the British managed to do it. But something you were saying earlier about German flying aces such as Richthofen, even today we know about these people, but yet the British versions don't seem to be so well known. Why is that? I think there's two main reasons. One is that at the time, the Germans had a policy of publicising their aces. So people like uh, Oswald Bolker, Max Immelmann, and then Richthofen, Manfred von Richthofen, and his brother Luther von Richthofen, were highly publicised heroes. They were sort of the epitome of German manhood. The Germans invested an awful lot of prestige in publicising their exploits. It was for propaganda purposes. These are German new knights of the air. That was their attitude. The French did the same, but the British preferred to say that we're all flying together 
together. You know, we're all performing a job, whether you're an ace or an uh, artillery observation or, or, or reconnaissance, you're all part of a team. And they didn't publicize their aces, in theory, but it did crack a bit. And for instance, when Albert Ball, one of the first aces, came home in 16 after his tour of duty, he got a VC and he was quite well publicized. And similarly, when uh, James McCudden came home in 1918, they started to allow a little bit of publicity. But that is one reason, is that they were so highly publicized at the time. The second reason is that there has been an obsession with German aces, particularly in America, which I don't think anybody really understands the reason for it, but there is an actual obsession there. And helped, of course, by the song, Snoopy and the Red Baron, or whatever it was. And no, I mean, that has publicized his name, and the whole Snoopy business, ludicrously, has kept his name alive. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's still true. Now, in the article you've written for the magazine, both the aces you talk about, McCudden and Manock, ended up dying in service. Was flying these planes an especially dangerous job compared with perhaps serving in the trenches or something? I think that the level of risk is difficult to judge because a lot of it depends on how long you do it for. But flying was exceptionally dangerous. I mean, it was dangerous to learn to fly. In fact, there's supposed to have been as many fatal casualties of people learning to fly as there ever were in action against the Germans. So you have to get past that first. And of course, uh, Manick and McCudden both managed that. But then, when you first start flying, there's something called air vision, and you just don't have it. If you go up in an airplane, you can't see. I mean, I had a flight in a microlight and you're concentrating so much on trying to fly you don't see anything going round about you and in that time if you happen to meet someone like Richter from you're dead you know, you'll never see him. The first time you'll ever know is when the bullet's stitched away down your back. Your first few flights in the air are incredibly dangerous. If you get through them, then your skills begin to develop. Now, both Manic and McCudden had exceptional skills, but in the end, they did it for so long. And if you keep on taking off, going into combat, flying into dogfight situations sometimes where there's dozens of planes flying around, streams of lead everywhere, you can just run into the them. And the thing is, you only need to make one mistake, and that's it. You're dead. There's no way back. And in, in McCudden's case, it came in a, a simple flying accident. It may have been caused by the wrong carburetor being fitted to his engine or whatever it was caused by. But he dies in a simple flying accident, the like of which could have happened to him any time in his career. And Manic is uh, shot down while flying low after uh, securing a, a final kill. And he just breaks all his own rules. He's flying about, circling about 600 feet above uh, the ground. So they just make a mistake and that's it, they're dead. And that could happen to anybody at any time. A lot of pilots don't last more than a week, but people like Manick and McCudden lasted months, and McCudden's case, years. So it's a sort of, not swings and roundabouts entirely, but if you get through that first few weeks, you're gonna be all right, probably. But then there comes fatigue, stress, and just tiredness, and just one mistake too many. That's something I was gonna come on to, is this kind of danger constantly facing them, would that have affected their mental health? it did affect their mental health. I mean, McCudden was a cold fish. Not unpleasant, but he seems to have shown almost no signs of nerves. He really was a calm, collected individual. Now, Manic never was. When he first started, he was, it was actually considered that he might be a, a coward, or at least in part a coward, because he had a lot of trouble with his nerves. He used to shake. He turned back a couple of times from missions in, in 17 when he started. He was an older man. He was between 29 and 31 while he was flying, which was old then for a, a pilot. And he 
he had a lot of difficulty coping, but he pulled himself together and he worked out, he was a logical, sensible man, and he worked out a way of getting through it. And he did it basically by a science of air fighting. He developed those skills and that saw him good. And then for a while he was all right. But as the stresses came in on him, after he'd been flying for a long time, his nerve, if not began to go, his nerve began to fray. He started to obsess on being shot down in flames and he'd come dancing into the mess going, flame arenos, sizzle, sizzle, wonk, and describing how the person he just shot down had burnt to death in his cockpit in awful detail. And then he'd sort of turn to the youngest pilot next to him and say, that's what will happen to you and your next patrol, my lad. <laughs> everyone would laugh. I'm not sure now why they'd laugh, but everyone would laugh. But uh, then later on, he went on leave just not long after that. And uh, it's an awful scene and because he's with his old, he was a socialist and he was with the, the Labour Party, with his oldest Labour Party mate. And he just suddenly starts crying in this chap's front room and, and face was contorted and his eyes weeping, saliva and snot running down, his shirt was soaked and he couldn't pull himself together, you know. And uh, when he saw his friend watching, he sort of eventually stopped crying, but he wouldn't talk about it. Now, now we know that that's combat stress fatigue. I mean, he should have been taken off duty, but he flew on. And uh, that's, of course, why he eventually made his mistake. He took more and more risks. It seems that some pilots, when they lose their nerve, stop flying and sort of give up. Some people, like Manic, just start trying to prove to themselves that they can do anything, that they'll get away with anything. I can't pretend to understand the mental processes of it, because I, of course, never had a, a situation like that. So both the aces you speak about, they managed to notch dozens and dozens of kills. What do you think set them apart from the other pilots? I think there's three things that make a great ace, and both of them had them, really. The first is you have to be incredibly personally skillful. So you've got to be able to fly your aircraft accurately and well so that it will carry out what you want it to do, you know, diving, looping, all the rest of it, all the manoeuvres in the air. Secondly, you have to be an extremely good shot because you don't get many chances. You only get a few bullets, and you've got to hit the target, and preferably the back of the pilot you're aiming at, I'm afraid. You have to have wonderful air vision so that you can see. And all those personal skills, you know, so that you can dive down and kill your target. Second thing is you have to be tactically wonderful, and both these pilots were, but particularly Manic was good at tactics. And what that involved is leading the pilots with you. So you magnified your own abilities and so there was four five six seven eight even more flying together and they would weld together as a unit so that when they smashed into a german formation they really took the maximum possible effect and they were both good formation leaders and that was an important thing that both had to do and thirdly you have to be a teacher not just by your example in the air but you have to be able to show other young pilots how to do it and that's what again manic was particularly famous for doing he'd take up a young pilot and he'd shoot the rear gun of a two-seater aircraft and then leave it for the uh, beginner to shoot the plane down. Now, that's not nice. Imagine the feelings of that pilot flying along, sitting basically on a gigantic petrol tank, not able to fight back and with his mate in the back seat dead, knowing that any moment he's going to be dead. So it is not a nice business, but what Manic was doing was trying to encourage pilots to get that vital first kill and then they'd move on. And whatever you think of the, the moral qualities of that, it was effective. So he was a great teacher as well. But the thing they both also had in common was attention to detail and here they'd test their own guns they'd set up their own ammunition they'd make sure every bullet was perfect they'd true their own guns McCudden actually souped up his own engine so it would fly higher and faster because he had experience earlier in the war and before the war as a mechanic McCudden was the one who said the difference between life and death could be the difference between clean flying goggles and dirty flying goggles because if the enemy came out of you at a spot of dirt you wouldn't see them in that second or two before they killed you and it was that level of detail that McCudden operated 
incorporated that. So both of them had attention to detail. That's the sort of thing that made them stand out, because very few people had all these qualities. And finally, it's now nearly 100 years since the events of the First World War happened. How do you think we should be remembering the Flying Aces today? I'm not particularly sentimental. I think we should remember them with respect. I think we should take an interest in their achievements. I think we should learn lessons from the sort of thing that happened to Manic, this idea that people can go on forever when they're obviously suffering from combat fatigue. I mean, I would use them as a lesson. I myself, I'm a great interest in both these great aces, Manic and McCudden, which I think, strangely, having said I'm not sentimental, does drift into the sentimental. But I think overall, we should sensibly remember them. We should remember their achievements and we should just take an interest and try not to forget get them. Not because there's any great moral lessons, because I don't think there is, but just because they're interesting. They make life more interesting, learning about people like these, people who stand out and deserve for generations that follow to think, God, how did they manage that? That, that sounds amazingly difficult, amazingly dangerous. And it was. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings starting May 8th wherever you get your podcasts. Peter Hart's Ace is Falling is now out in paperback, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Next, we'll be finding out about Edward I's Arthurian Obsession and the Winchester Roundtable. But first, here are details of how you can subscribe to BBC History magazine. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before 31st of March 2009 can save a pound on every issue. That works out at just £2.60 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or just call us on 0844-844-0250 and quote the code POD0309. And if you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus four four one seven nine five four four seven two eight for details. The most splendid piece of furniture to come down to us from the Middle Ages is how, as Mark Morris is about to tell us, the Winchester Round Table has been lauded. It's been firmly dated to the end of the 13th century, when King Edward I was on the throne in England, and the Arthurian romance stories were very much in vogue in Britain and across Europe. So Mark Morris, the most recent biographer of Edward I, explained to me why this king was particularly keen to associate himself with the Arthur story. 
Okay, so the Winchester Roundtable famously has Arthurian associations, but uh, it was never used by a king known as Arthur, was it? Uh, no, for the very good reason that there was never a king called Arthur. One of the things I was very keen to, 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 to lay on the line in my biography of Edward I, um, for anybody that was entertaining any notion that there was a King Arthur, there wasn't. <laughs> there may have been a bloke called Arthur, you know, at any at some point in the in the, the British past, but, but we never had a king called Arthur, so, uh, you know, he never owned this particular round table. The one in Winchester... Um, uh, we, we historians long supposed was a creation of the late Middle Ages, and in the 1970s it was dated scientifically to the 13th century. There's some slight controversy about precisely when, but most people are satisfied that it is a creation of the late 13th century based on dendrochronological evidence. So the orthodoxy had it that it was 1290. Is that correct? That's right. Now, the, 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 I mean, because it was um, scientifically dated to the late 13th century, um, people said, "Well, that fits very well with the reign of Edward I, uh, for whom lots of other lots of other evidence indicates um, there was he, he was particularly interested in King Arthur and, and the King Arthur legend." Um, he organised round tables. We know he organised a round table tournament at Nevin in northwest Wales in 1284. He organised one at Falkirk in 1302. Um, he excavated Arthur's tomb, the reputed tomb of King Arthur at Glastonbury in 1278. So lots of things suggested that Edward I, unlike his predecessor and father, um, who, who showed no demonstrable interest in Arthur, Edward I was a good fit with Arthur. And when um, an earlier generation of historians combed through the records of Edward's wardrobe, they discovered a reference to a tournament in Winchester in 1290. Um, no, no particular reference to Arthur, but because there was this chivalric jamboree in Winchester that year, they said, well, that's a very good fit, and so the two were put together. 1290 became, therefore, the orthodox date for the creation of the round table. Following your research on Edward I, you say different. I say different, um, because I think this is a good example. I mean, there was a, a huge slew of research done on the round table in the 1970s when um, the Great Hall was remodelled and the table was moved. I think what, what, what went wrong there was there was a slightly too headlong a rush towards the original archive material. And what was missed in this um, rather too quick rush towards the original um, unpublished documents was a perfectly good chronicle entry that had already been published in the 1860s um, that said Edward had not only been to Winchester in 1285, which was known, um, but that he had created 44 new knights on a particular day, the 8th of uh, September 1285. Had they known this, I think it would have altered their conclusions, and it led me to do some more research on that particular occasion at Winchester. And what you can discover is that Edward did indeed have a mass knighting ceremony in Winchester uh, in, in 1285. I should say I haven't found a golden bullet either. I haven't found, you know, a, an entry on a wardrobe book or something that says, you know, paid to John the Carpenter for making a great round table 20 shillings. But I think it is a more credible context than the one that has previously been proposed. I suppose that the, the thing that makes more credible than 1290 as a date for a round table is not only do you have this gathering and, and presumably a great deal of pageantry and the, the ceremonial of the king dubbing new knights in Winchester Great Hall. But the political context makes 1285 a very compelling date because in 1285, Edward had just got back from Wales. In 1282, the Welsh had rebelled and Edward had conquered Wales. 
after the, sort of the final conquest of Wales, you know, he'd gone in, he'd uh, destroyed and killed the native princes, he started building those magnificent castles at Conway, Harlech and Carnarvon, and he spent most of 1283 and 1284 touring Wales, this great kind of victory parade, you know, um, having the Welsh do homage to him, visiting all the various castles, going everywhere in, in Wales, right down to St David's and every single district. Of the, of the conquered country he visits. So it's only 1285, after an absence of nearly three years, that he's back in southern England. And it's only Easter 1285 that he's seen again in London. And I see what's going on at Winchester in 1285 as part of the ongoing um, celebration of the conquest of Wales. And one of the things that Edward's doing by having the round table at Winchester is um, appropriating the Arthur myths uh, just as he'd done when he organized a round table at Nevin in 1284 to celebrate the conquest of Wales, and just as he'd done in 1278 after the First Welsh War, um, to remind the Welsh that Arthur was dead and wasn't really coming back, but also as the conqueror to appropriate Arthur's mystique. So this whole Arthurian fetish of King Edward I uh, is, is basically a result of his political aspirations in Wales? Well, I think it's, it's a bit of both. I mean... Uh, you get some historians that would say Edward I is merely toying. This is the view of the previous biographer, Michael Prestwich. He said that Arthur was a, a conceit that Edward occasionally toyed with, probably for political reasons. And you'll find other historians, equally eminent, like Rhys Davis, um, who said that, you know, we needn't suppose that Edward I was immune to the kind of excitement and enthusiasm that you can see other people um, uh, harboring when they when they when you're talking about Arthur in the 13th century, that these these tournaments and these jollies and these stories about King Arthur were were really popular entertainment, and I think Edward, you know, Edward, like everybody else um, in aristocratic and royal circles, would have been brought up with the Arthur stories, you know, at his mother's knee, um, and would have would have shared this enthusiasm. I mean, Arthur was just the sort of in terms of literature, was was super popular from the late 12th century onwards. You know, he was uh, the most popular um, of all romance stories. You're talking sort of Harry Potter in terms of sales. Um, so um, there's, there's no need to doubt that Edward was enthusiastic for this kind of literature. At the same time, um, Arthur is popular everywhere in Europe. His particular problem for the English is that the stories of Arthur are located in the sort of, what, 5th, 6th centuries. And the heroes, Arthur himself, is a British, i.e. a Welsh king. They are, these are ancient Celtic legends. And the bad guys in the Arthur stories are the Saxons, who are the forefathers of the English. So the, the, for English kings like Edward and for English aristocrats, the problem with Arthur is that he's a, a fantastic figure and you want to aspire to be a fantastic warrior like him, but you're the bad guy in the story. So... This is the particular challenge that the Arthur legend poses for the English, is how do they kind of appropriate it, and how do they get around it? And the answer, well, one of the ways they do it is they sort of say, well, um, Arthur's so good, and then we're sort of just we're emulating him. Um, and the other way you can, uh, you can, you can uh, deal with Arthur is to say, well, Arthur was a great king, but he's very definitely dead. See, the Welsh... Um, the story of Arthur, according to the Welsh legends, was that he wasn't dead, he was just resting. And he was one day going to come back. This is the story, the part of the story the Welsh really liked. And you can see what's going on in, in the 13th century in Edward's reign is 
by digging up Edward in 1270, uh, sorry, by digging up Arthur in 1278 at Glastonbury, Edward is saying, well, we're here to honor Arthur. You know, we're here to sort of rebury him, the, the great King Arthur. But by doing that, you're also saying, these are his bones. He's not coming back to save anybody. You know, get used to the idea. So it, it is a bit of both, you know, that, that, that Arthur is, a, is both a, um, uh, a figure to be uh, emulated and praised, but he, he also poses this particular political problem for the kings of England. And finally, presumably you'd recommend a visit to Winchester. What would you advise a visitor to look out for in the Great Hall that houses the Round Table? Go, go to Winchester to see both the table and the Great Hall. The Great Hall, uh, if memory serves, was built in the 1220s, and it's a, it's a very rare example of the surviving uh, standalone Great Hall in an English castle. You get lots, you know, lots of castles are destroyed deliberately in the, um, during the English Civil War. I think there's only two or three freestanding great halls that survive. There's one um, at uh, um, Great Oakham in Rutland, I think. And the other one of the other few surviving halls is Winchester. Um, the only reason it survived was because the townspeople said, we need this hall because we use it as a, as a, a court. It was used you know, by the um, assize judges. Um, and in fact, when you go to Winchester today, and until I think until the 1960s or 70s, the great hall at Winchester was used as a courtroom. In the 1970s, they built this new court complex next to it. So the Great Hall at Winchester is, a, is a, not quite a unique, but a very rare survival. So go see for that reason. Go see this fantastic hall built in the minority of Henry III. Um, and also, at, at the far end, um, you can see the round table. Um, in the words of Martin Biddle, the, 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 the chap who wrote the, the giant book on it, um, the, the most splendid piece of furniture to come down to us from the English Middle Ages. A Great and Terrible King, Edward I and the Forging of Britain by Mark Morris is now out in paperback from Windmill Books and you can find out more by reading Mark's feature in the March issue of the BBC History magazine. And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics plus all our other features, do look out for the March issue. You might also want to check out our website where you can subscribe to the magazine, buy recommended history books through our BBC History bookstore or download previous podcasts. The address is www.bbchistorymagazine.com I do hope you'll join us for two more great podcasts next month.